Uh, well, good morning. I'm so happy to be here. Um, I'm not so sure I want Scott in my class. Um, he asked lots of hard questions, and uh, I'd rather kick him out than, uh, than, have him <laughs> than have him stay there. In any case, I would, uh, I'm so happy to be here, and I would like to share a passage of Scripture with you this morning from Luke uh, chapter 14 and verses 25 to 35. Luke 14, 25 to 35. Now large crowds were going along with him. He turned and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has, set, uh, has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe, uh, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Lord, how we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it means to us. We thank you for who you are to us. We pray that as we look at this mirror today, this passage, we pray that you will speak to our hearts. We pray that what we learn will be implanted in our souls, in the depths of our hearts, so that it will come out, it will bear fruit, and it will change our lives. We thank you, Lord, because this is uh, your word, and we thank you because it is a challenging world. We pray that you will use it today to change our lives. We pray that you would use it today to do your work in us so that we'll become more like Jesus Christ and we can follow him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One phrase in the Psalms um, that David prayed in Psalm 17 seems to sum up the pursuit of God for the Old Testament believers as well as for New Testament and for us today. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. Now, David prayed that prayer or said those words in the context of pleading with God, crying out to God, to help him as he was in trouble. But as he was doing so, he was looking into his own heart in a moment of introspection as he was crying out to God to see if there's anything in his life, any sin in his life that would prevent God from actually coming to his aid at the moment he was praying that prayer in Psalm 17. 
And then um, when, 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 he, when he saw that God had visited him, had tested him, had tried his heart, he came up with the conclusion that his steps has held fast to the paths of God and his feet have not slipped. Now, the imagery behind that is very simple, straightforward. You probably have experienced that yourself. You're in a place, you're hiking, you're going in a, in a place that you don't know. And uh, it is a treacherous place where you can slip and fall. And uh, you start looking for a path. You start looking for a trail that you can use in order to go where other people have gone so that you know that this is going to be a, um, a, a solid place, a solid rock or a solid place where you can set your feet so that you won't sl- uh, slip and fall. And this is the imagery. And then uh, the, the, the trailblazer in this imagery is God himself. He has gone before us as David has seen and, and left a trail. And he said, well, uh, as I look into my life, I, as I look at, my, at the way I, I uh, conducted myself, at the way I behaved, at the way I thought, at the way I, I, uh, I lived my life, I look at this Lord and I, and I see that I've actually followed the path. I followed your path and then my feet has, have not slipped. Therefore, God, uh, please answer my prayer. As we seek to follow Christ, we need to pay attention to such a statement because most of us are inclined to sort of follow Christ. We, we know Christ is in that direction and we said, well, that's where we should be going and we start kind of zigzagging our way towards Christ, uh, getting off the path here and there and, and we feel good as long as we are keeping on as long as we are moving towards Christ, hoping at the end of the day we'll end up where he is, uh, even though we're not following the exact path that he has trodden. We are prone to wonder, as our song says. We are prone to do that. We, um, we, we look at Jesus' example as a certain ideal that we need to strive to get to, but almost an impossible ideal. Therefore, we are not looking on uh, a day-to-day basis, on, a, on a, an issue-to-issue basis, what, uh, what is the path, what is the footprint, what are the footprints and the paths that Jesus has left behind. I was here last Sunday listening to Pastor Scott's message on the right to life. I sat there in my chair with tears in my eyes as I listened to the staggering numbers of persons that have been killed. And those numbers can but be multiplied, I don't know how many folds, if we take the whole globe into consideration and not just the numbers in the United States of America. And I, and I kept on sitting there almost imagining the cries of those persons to God almost like the blood of Abel. And when we take the whole global picture into consideration, the sound is deafening. And that's only one of the issues that Pastor Scott talks about. And uh, he, he has uh, doing, he's been doing a series on uh, the elephant in the room and, 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 and a series on, on different difficult, difficult, challenging topics that face us today. Holiness versus authenticity, morality of evangelism, and the inevitable end of the sexual revolution and the right to life. All these issues and maybe a dozen more, are shaping our society today, are shaping our world today, and shaking churches and the faith of many believers. And I was praying as I was sitting there, Lord, what would you have me say next Sunday to a church that has listened to those challenges, to have listened to the stance that we should be taking against those issues in our society, what would you have me say? 
what would you have me talk about? And I was drawn to this passage because as I look into this passage, I see that Jesus has told us that at the end of the day, once we come to him, we're going to have to sacrifice. We're going to have to take stands that will put us in harm's way in many other, in many ways. In 1997, I came with my family to Dallas. One day, we were um, in the mall, and we were grabbing a few winter clothes for the kids at that time. It was uh, just about uh, winter. I don't know if there's any winter in Dallas, I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, we uh, were uh, buying a few stuff at, uh, stuff at the mall, and uh, there in the middle of the mall, there was this beautiful brand new car. Our car was bad. It was lousy. It was old. Almost breaking. And, and there was nobody by that car. It was all by itself. And there was a, a pile of paper, uh, papers on, uh, on the side and a glass box uh, right next to the papers. And, and a sign that says, you can enter a drawing uh, that would actually, uh, uh, that, that will, uh, you can win that car. All what you have to do is just fill out a slip of paper with your name, address, and telephone number, and you can win the car. And it had the date of when, the, uh, when they're going to, uh, to announce the winner. So I looked at my wife, and my wife looked at me, and in a very little deliberation, we decided, well, we need a car. So I filled out the card, name, address, the telephone number, dropped it in the box, and I uttered a little silent prayer, Lord, have us win this car. One month later, we did not get the car. But we got a strange, shocking envelope in the mail. It was a telephone bill. And a telephone bill came to us from a strange, unknown telephone company to us. And... Uh, I looked at, the, I looked at the, the bill and I said, okay, this is my phone number, all right. Well, and then I looked at the, at, at the entries and the transactions and, and the phone calls. Yeah, these are the numbers we call regularly. So there must be, this is our telephone, all right. But then I thought there was a mistake. There must be a mistake. I don't know this telephone company. I registered our phone with AT&T. This is our long distance provider. So I picked up the phone. And I called this company, new company, which I hope I won't slip into naming it. But uh, I, I, I called them and I said, uh, sir, there is a mistake. You have sent me this bill and I don't know you. Who are you? I'm, I'm with AT&T. He said, no, no, sir, a month ago, you have asked to be switched from AT&T to our company. This was my first introduction to fine print. On the bottom of that paper I filled out in the mall, it says, by the time you enter this, when you sign this paper, you have asked for your long-term distance provider, uh, a phone prov a distance call provider, you, are, you, are, you have asked to be switched to such and such a company. It was, Jesus never has anything in fine print. It's always in bold, italic, and highlighted the cost of discipleship. There is no hidden cost. There is nothing hidden with Jesus from the first time he called us. In Luke 9, just before this passage, Jesus was saying, as 
they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Count the cost, my friend, Jesus was telling him. Now, if you want to follow Jesus' footsteps, he's the one that suffered the most. He's the one that sacrificed the most. He's the example of sacrifice for us. Philippians 2, he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, Paul writes, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and become, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, in 2 Corinthians, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Matthew 20, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And a shocking application in 1 John 3.16, not John 3.16, 1 John 3.16, we know we, we, we know the love, uh, we, know, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. We know love by this, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Sacrifice. Jesus did not reach the cross by chance or by mistake or because of unfortunate adverse circumstances, but by divine eternal design as, Paul, as Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. Jesus on the cross, knowing the will of the Father and willingly embracing the gospel project, gave himself to be crucified and killed in order to save you and me. That is a serious footprint. That's one serious path that Jesus has set before us, a hard path to follow. For Jesus, it was suffering to make the gospel available to all. For us, it is suffering to make it known to all. We have to follow in his example. What does he request? What does it look like to follow Jesus in this matter? What will it take for us to follow? What will it take for us to follow Christ in sacrifice? I want to first give two initial remarks. First, Jesus addressed his teaching not only to the disciples, not only to the disciples, but to the large crowds who were going along, as we read in verse 25. It is safe to assume that among these crowds were some following Jesus for the benefits, people that were receiving services, miracles, healing, eating, food, whatever they needed from Jesus, he was there for them. So people were pragmatic. Those are the pragmatics. They just wanted to, to come to Jesus for what they can get out of him. They were there. They heard this teaching. Some were falling out of intellectual or religious curiosity, Interested in, 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 in the intellectual, theological debate, the ethical, the religious debate that was happening between him and the Pharisees. They needed to know where is this going? Where is Jesus going to end? Uh, these are the intellectuals, the, the religious people. Some were following because they sympathized with Jesus. They saw him as one defending the poor and the marginalized and attacking the religious establishment and the political establishment of the day. The social reformers were there 
the advocates were there following him. Some were following him because they really believed in him and they were generally interested in becoming his disciples to learn from his life and from his path and dedicate their lives to him, to serve him. And the second remark I want to give, largely this passage was left out to be applied to full-time Christian servers, uh, servants, ministers that want to go full-time ministry. Those are the people that have to forsake everything for the sake of Christ. Well, first, this is wrong because first, the first remark is true. It was addressed to everyone, not just for the 12 disciples, not only just to the disciples who are believers in him, but he addressed this to everyone that was listening to him. It is not true. Jesus requests the sacrifice from all those who believe in him, all those that who want to be his disciples. To be a disciple of Christ is to believe in him and to follow his example. Not just to believe in him, but to believe in him and to follow him, to follow his example. What does he expect? There are three statements in this passage that are challenging to us. He cannot be my disciple in verse 26. He cannot be my disciple in verse 27. And none of you can be my disciple in verse 33. I don't know about you, but this text scares me to death. And if it doesn't, that means you have not understood it or did not really grasp the implications of what Jesus is teaching in this passage. We are all at risk of ignoring these issues because of the challenge they pose to us. I am not preaching this sermon today to beat us on the head. I am not preaching this, this sermon today because I want everyone to leave this room out feeling bad and guilty for not giving up everything they have for Jesus. I'm preaching this message for you and me so that after we have heard those four sermons on challenging issues, and maybe there are many more, that we face in our society, we should understand that Jesus is not written, has not written this in the fine print, but he had told us all about this. He had told us that one day we're going to be faced, always we're going to be faced, the early church and throughout history and us today, we're going to be faced with challenging situations where we're going to be having taken stand for Christ at the price of our safety, our personal comfort, and everything that we have. The first obstacle that Jesus talks about is the obstacle of personal relationships. If anyone comes to me, verse 26, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my dad. I love my, my mother. I love my brother. I love my sisters. I don't want to forsake them. I don't want to hate them. This is not what Jesus is teaching here. He knows the Ten Commandments. He knows the Ten Commandments. He, he, he taught about honoring the father and mother. This is Father's Day. No one should hate their father or their mother. That's not what Jesus is talking about. The word hate that he uses here is a, is a comparative word. It, it is, it, it's a word that, that, that compares that, that applies when, when there's exclusive loyalty. When there's exclusive loyalty. In Genesis 29, we read those. That he, Jacob, loved Rachel more than Leah. So he worked for Laban for seven more years when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved. 
Now, it didn't say that he didn't love Leah. He loved her, but he loved Rachel more than her. So that's interpreted as unloved or, quote-unquote, hated. Now, Jesus made this clear in another discourse similar to this one, teaching about almost the same issue. He who loves father or mother more than me in Matthew, he is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. There's an exclusive relationship, exclusive loyalty. Love produces absolute loyalty and constant preoccupation. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about. When you love me, when you're loyal to me, when you follow me, there's absolute loyalty and constant preoccupation with me. And in light of that, the word hate, the word hate is, is, is understood as, as indifference or evasion. When you hate somebody, you evade them. You, you, you're indifferent to them. Now, he's not teaching us to, to evade or to be indifferent, but this is the contrast he's making. You're absolutely loyal to me, and you're constantly preoccupied with my business. Some of us have experienced the division that Jesus speaks about. As we come to faith in him, we're alienated from those who are in our immediate family who do not share our faith or convictions. In an Islamic context, this is common. Those who come to Christ are persecuted and sometimes executed by their own families. Just now, as we're here, we have learned about a boy in one of our churches that his father and brothers uh, beaten him. And then, and then they, they, they want him to renounce Christ, and, and he did. Because they were going to kill him. And he came back crying with tears. I denied Christ. I denied Christ. The forgiveness and the love of God and the mercy of God and the Peter example is there for us to know that there is redemption and there's grace and there's mercy of God for such a man. But yes, there is alienation from our immediate family. Some are driven out of their parents' homes, never allowed to come back again because of their faith. In other contexts, it's alienations from, from our family in other forms. It boils down to this. If you were to choose one day between your loyalty to your own immediate family and your loyalty to Christ, which one would you forsake? Absolute loyalty. Notice that all the relationships that Jesus uses are first-degree relationships. There are people that you lived with, you grew up with, you played with, you cried with, you, you had fun with, you've eaten with. People that are immediate family. Now, this is not a selfish disregard of family that Jesus is talking about here. And no one can use that to disregard his family and to completely ignore his family and not provide for her or love them because of the statement that he includes even his own life even his own life. Exclusive devotion and loyalty to Christ. This is heavy stuff. This is heavy stuff. Is there a relationship in your life that is holding you back? What would you um, do to place Jesus at the center of your convictions, your emotions, your will, your purpose, your devotions? Your own life has to be forsaken for Christ. 
in order to be able to follow him. That means your behavior, ministry, your ideas, your moral compass, your ethical standards, your decisions, your will, your plans, your purpose, everything about you, even your own identity is defined by this exclusive, absolute relationship to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and as the teacher that you follow in all what you do. The second obstacle is personal safety. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. What did Jesus mean by that? Now, there are many applications to carrying the cross, ranging from wearing a cross on the clothes to uh, actually talking about it as suffering a little bit for Christ here and there. But we've we got to take it in the cultural and political context of Jesus Christ. He was coming from Galilee. He was going towards Jerusalem, he was going towards the cross, and he was going from village to village, and as he was going, he was teaching, and that's when he taught this teaching. Jesus was going towards the cross, and and carrying the cross in Jesus' context means being condemned to death. The example that we have is Jesus himself, as he carried his own cross, and he was walking towards Golgotha. If anyone wants to become my follower, in Luke 9, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. If we, if we look in the language of this, we, we have to come to, to the uncomfortable but inevitable conclusion that Christ's followers are people condemned to death by this world. Carrying the cross is being condemned, is being on death row, waiting for the execution. People of this world and the world is not waiting for our stand on abortion or sexuality or anything else to condemn us to death. We have been tried and found guilty the minute we said we're going to follow Christ. I wonder how our first meeting with Paul will go as we get to heaven. We who have played it safe. Trying to evade him will make us bump into Peter or Stephen or James or maybe even Christ. There's a cost for not counting the costs that Jesus illustrates in two illustrations in this passage, the illustration of the building of the tower, where the builder will suffer tremendous loss and the observers will ridicule him. The world is just waiting. All the news networks that don't care about Christ and Christianity are waiting to see pastors fall. And they will run and rerun and rerun the story multiple times and even multiple days, maybe even weeks because they want to ridicule our faith because we fell in the middle of the road. They will ridicule us. The second illustration is waging a war. Many soldiers are lost, are dead because of conceit and pride. And, and Jesus said, you get to count the cost as a king that goes to war. Can I win this war or not? Kings are discredited and disqualified of their leadership. The third obstacle is that of personal comfort. Personal comfort. 
We got to give up personal comfort. So therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possession. This is not only just money, but all possessions. It has to do with seeking and cherishing personal comfort and pleasures of this life more than seeking Christ. Trusting with what we have, trusting what we have and not who we have, who is Jesus Christ. Somehow we deluded ourselves, and not just Americans, but the whole world. It's a globalized problem. We have deluded ourselves into thinking that stability and safety and pleasures lie in having many things, much money, and all the comfort and pleasures that goes with it. Now, it is definitely more comfortable to have more money. I'm not going to deny that. However, there is not, it's not safer nor more stable not more pleasurable than to have Jesus Christ and to follow him. God wants us to always depend on him. Whether we have plenty or not, he wants us to realize that our pleasure, safety, stability, and trust is in him. Our joy is in him. I don't know what he's calling you to give up or to forsake for his sake in order to follow him. The question is, as we look at those challenges, those obstacles, those, those are the hurdles that, that will not allow us to walk the path that Jesus walked. To go after him. To go and follow his example daily in everything. Not just as an ideal we set out there. This is the Jesus example, but, but, but we're not going to be able to do it. That's, these are obstacles that we're facing and we made them so big and we made them so important in our lives to a point where we've even diluted Jesus' teaching to, to say that, that could, he could not have meant this. I don't like the interpretation of this passage I just gave to you. I don't like it. It doesn't resonate with my sinful nature. It hurts me. It condemns me. It brings me to a point where I'm saying, Lord, Lord, I'm struggling with all three of them. Not just one, not two, with three of them. And you kind of sit and say, what should I do? Which one should I, where do I start? Where do I start? I don't know. You know. Will you just leave this service today just thinking about one thing? that the Lord spoke to you about today and say, Lord, I'm going to start with this one thing. This is one thing today that you pointed out to me. Whether it's a personal relationship, whether it's physical comfort, whether it's fear of any kind, I'm just going to deal with one, one thing, Lord, for your sake today. Just one. And just experience the joy and the peace that fills up your mind and heart and, and life as you know that you are now walking the path that Jesus walked. And there is no obstacle in that direction that stops you from following Christ. Just one thing. And experience that joy. The other day I was driving a nice car. Uh, the only thing that has in common with the car I had in Dallas is that it's white. But it's a really nice car. And I was driving down the hill in Boone and there's a butterfly just landed on my windshield. And as the butterfly landed on my windshield, when I was driving slowly, I started picking up speed, going downhill, not beyond the speed limit. It was okay. 
as I'm picking up speed, and the butterfly was struggling to hang onto the windshield. And uh, first it had its wings up, out, stretched out. But then as, as the car started going down, picking up speed, the butterfly had the sense to, to reduce them and not try because the wind was blowing against them so hard that the butterfly just could not fly. And it was, it was holding onto the windshield. I could, I could feel like with, with, with all its might was holding onto the windshield and, and just going down the hill and the air blowing. And all what this butterfly had to do in order to, 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 to break free was to let go of that windshield. That's all what it had to do. It, had, it could have just let go and fly up in the air. And sometimes we're like that. Just, I, I was looking at this like, yeah, no, we're like that in so many ways. We hang on to these things of this world and this goat is going at 100 miles per hour and we think we're flying and we're afraid and we don't know what to do and, and uh, we, we don't believe the promises of God. We don't believe that there's joy in following Him. We don't believe there's joy in sacrifice. We don't believe all this. Thing. And we're just holding on to what we have and we're afraid. All what we have to do is just let go. And the minute we let go, we will fly. We will fly. The Lord will be there to pick us up and we will fly and we will be able to follow Him. Will you fly with Him? Will you let go? Will you let Him hold you? Will you trust Him enough to know that forsaking everything that you have for His sake is actually a gain and not a loss? Will you do that today? Why I struggle with all this? I struggle. I'm no spiritual hero. I struggle with personal relationships. I struggle with uh, comfort. I struggle with uh, everything that, that, even beyond that, even beyond all these things, I struggle. I don't want to let go. I'm afraid many times. I don't share Christ in places because of my fear sometimes. I struggle. And as I read this passage, I say to myself, Oh Lord, please, help me to trust you. 